Hey, y'all, just a quick heads up. The episode you're about to listen to is eight to 10 years old. Now, these episodes were intended to be evergreen, and I still believe there's a lot of good information in these early episodes, but I do want to let you know that some of my ideas have evolved over time. Times have changed since we made these episodes, and ultimately, I'd like to think I've grown a lot as an artist and a human and that these don't necessarily represent my best work or the best of the podcast. If you're new around here, I suggest starting with the most recent episode or at least go back to around 300 and move forward from there. Enjoy the episode. As soon as you like paid or invested something, you're like, well, I'm going to work to get a return because I've invested yeah. like capital and not just my time and resources. Hey, everybody, you're listening to the Creative Pep Talk podcast. This show is about commercial art, making a good living and making great art. I'm your host, Andy J. Miller. Our syndicate is Illustration Age. You can find this show at illustrationage.com slash creative pep talk. Go check that out. Okay, let's jump in. I really needed to rehaul my website. I was talking to some web people, looking around, and I got intrigued by Squarespace's new fluid engine, partially because it just sounds cool, but also because it allows you to drag and resize and layer up anything you can imagine. I dove in, rebuilt my site. It's the most me site that I've ever had. I just absolutely love it. Launched it. Got such a great response. Some industry illustration and designy peers even reached out and was like, hey, who coded this thing, man? I'm like, y'all, I did it by myself. No coding with Squarespace's new Fluid Engine. I told him, like, you should go check it out. You're going to be surprised with what you can do. And I built this thing before Squarespace reached out to sponsor the show. So I was like, boom, easy peasy. I was going to tell you about this new site anyway. Go check it out, AndyJPizza.com if you want to see what I did with it. If you want to try it yourself, make a site that's totally you where you can build a portfolio, sell content and courses and all kinds of other stuff, head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with promo code PEPTALK, all one word, all uppercase. This episode is supported by In The Making, an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express, the all-in-one content creation app included in your Creative Cloud membership. If you are trying to boost the YouTube, TikTok, Reels content side of what you're doing, one episode of In The Making that I think will be super useful to you is their episode with John Yushai. I think John's method for including his audience in the process is really inspiring. And if you want to hear about that and more about leveling up your game in the creator economy, just search In The Making in your podcast player to listen. Many thanks to In The Making and Adobe Express for their support. This episode with you. Today features a long conversation that I had with my buddy Andrew Nyer. He's a product designer, illustrator, artist. 
one of my best friends of all time, one of my favorite people of all time. He, we met in 2011. We started doing this collaborative show called Color Me Blank, where he asked me to bring the indie rock coloring book idea, like just doing, I guess, adult coloring, which wasn't really a thing at the time, to his gallery in Cincinnati. And he kept coming up with all these ideas, so it came became a collaborative show. So we were doing um, this thing where we drew all over the walls, black and white, just black lines onto white walls and then we let the public come in and paint the mural with uh, five and a half foot giant markers that he created Um, and it was uh, absolute blast we did that in Cincinnati in 2011 since then we've been to the Indianapolis Museum of Contemporary Art we've done it in Denver we've done it in New York City Um, you know we continue to do it it's a phenomenal show it's super super fun um and ever since then ever since we met we've been good friends hung out a lot and he's been a major major inspiration for me he brings a ridiculous level of excellence to everything that he does he just has um an integrity about the way that he approaches creativity that really caused me to want to level up and up my game and have a higher standard for everything that I do. And for that, I am super, super grateful for him and all the uh, uh, inspiration that he's given me over the years. You're going to love this conversation. I'll get into a little bit uh, more detail about who he is and, and, and what you can expect from this in a second. Before I jump any further into that, let me just say that a few weeks ago, I did a talk in Louisville for Creative Mornings. Ben Terry of Access Ventures had me out. Um, It was phenomenal. I had such a fantastic time. Seriously, one of my uh, favorite experiences. It was just such a blast. Now you can go look that talk up. Just Google Creative Mornings, Andy J. Miller. You'll find the talk. It's very peppy. It's uh, it's really just a rally around creative people believing in themselves and um, what to do when nobody recognizes your brilliance, no one's fostering you, no one's utilizing you to the best of your ability. How do you respond to that and uh, still be successful and still um, do great things? Um, and, and what if you're a penguin in a pigeon's world? That'll make more sense if you go listen to the talk. People have been really enthusiastic about it. It was the top trending talk on Creative Mornings. Um, thank you guys for watching it and sharing it and, and all the support there. Um, go check that out. Uh, people have been really lovely about the whole experience, and I hope to do more talks like that. So in today's show, we're going to chat with Andrew Nyer, and we're going to talk mainly about his decision to focus Uh, more intensely on product design. He's also an illustrator and an artist, but a few years ago he started becoming more serious about the products that he was working on. He he creates lights and uh, accessories and products and and all kinds of interesting things. Um, And he decided to kind of go all in a few years ago and it's really just completely exploded. He just launched a bunch of new products. They're absolutely fantastic seriously go check it out andrewnyer.com uh the new range is called stuff by andrew nyer um it's absolutely beautiful it's it's modern but also really funny and human uh he created this 
key ring uh, holder, I guess. I don't know. I don't know if that's what it's called, but uh, it. It's a hand that holds your keys like uh, the finger and thumb, like holding your keys. And we have that at our house. Uh, it works with a magnet system. It's so good. It's so funny and charming and awesome. And uh, we use that. And uh, we have some of his lights in our house and some of his art. Um, he's done work with, he's done product design for CB2. But mainly what he does is sells his own products, his own lights, and, and kits all that stuff out. Go check out all of his new stuff that's just his new stuff um that's what it's called the stuff range go check it out phenomenal stuff you're gonna love it you're gonna have a laugh and uh you're gonna be in awe of the beauty of the elegance of this design go check that out but we talk about that we get into um how he made that decision and then the power of really discovering where he needed to focus his energy and going all in and how that affected his career so that's what we're going to talk about today Hope you enjoy it. I'm sure you will. And also, I look forward to seeing you guys at Icon Illustration Conference this week. Um, Come and chat with me. If you see a goofy-looking dude with uh, clear glasses and a beard, it's probably me. Well, it probably isn't. There's probably like 300 people like that there. But (laughs) if you recognize me, do not be shy. Come talk to me. Let's have a chat. Um, Without further ado, here's Andrew Nyer. of like all this stuff that we're making you know all these like notebooks and stuff that I make posters yeah. and all that and you know the downside to that of being throwaway potentially just junk drawer yeah items. yeah um, and like, that's why I'm taking junk drawer items and making them like <laughs> yeah yeah I'm giving them like a higher purpose it's good though like I think even at a higher price point it's like worth more to the people that buy it yeah rather than just another print that they put in the flat file. That's why I'm like, everything I'm trying to do with the products is make something that has a function to it. Uh-huh. But like either, so it serves two purposes, of one being like a decoration in your environment, but then also is serves a function, but then if anything, can also increase that function like this. Like, this is a better, that just feels good. Yeah. The tissue out. And like, you don't know what he just did in the... <laughs> What did you just do? What just was that? Pulled a tissue out good. of a piece of candy. The old candy, yeah. Um, so, you know, I had a lot of things I want to talk to you about, but we can kind of go wherever it takes us. But I thought for the audience that might not be familiar with what you do, I, we could start with like, you're a product designer now, but you went to Micah and you you did printmaking at school. Yeah. Uh, and... You could just talk us through that transformation of going from printmaking to yeah. whatever, however you got you to product design. Yeah, so even like prior to going to school, like my reason for going to art school was I didn't want to go to college. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I was like, oh, but I, you felt like yeah, you no, to. like I hated. I was just a terrible student, and I yeah. just didn't enjoy. I don't know. I, I never just, knew that you were a terrible student. I mean, I got like I was good at like. I, the classes I did well in were like calculus and physics, like things that I had an interest in just because it was like solving. There was like a problem. Okay. It was like an objective right. thing. That yeah, did. yeah. But like English and like all those, oh my gosh, it was like the worst student in the world. I just, most of it wasn't that I performed bad. It's just, I 
wasn't interested, so I just didn't didn't do it. Which I'm sure my parents were like super (laughs) excited about. But no, so like all throughout high school, like I would just, the projects and things I would do would just be make make weird stuff. Uh I didn't really think about it until like starting kind of people asking me where this like product line and trying to trace back the origin. So then I don't think, so I always was like doing art and growing up in high school and all that stuff, but it was all just like, your normal art school yeah. kind of stuff that was like, oh, I draw something really realistic in pencil. Yeah. But I don't think I ever used even color prior to going to school. So I was approaching like, I just went to art school because I was like, well, if I'm going to college, I might as well do something that the only thing I could think of that I'm the most interested in. Uh-huh. So when I went to school, I was like, well, I should go to graphic design because I can get a great job. And I like... I feel I like that's a really common tale. Yeah. It's something no, I've like, thought a lot about actually. Yeah, it's so like, like... Go ahead. When I started i really like there's a couple people in my class that i really connected with and i liked the idea of doing design but the only graphic design i was interested at the time was stuff that wasn't graphic design but it (laughs) somehow still had a foot in that category yeah it got slipped in so then i think when i was exposed to all these things i didn't even know were options because i wasn't really familiar with like i didn't go to art magnet school or these things so i had no exposure that printmaking was even a thing and i was like oh this is awesome i just get to make weird things mm-hmm. and so the thing i liked about it was it was like it was like a ba- it was a good balance between a trade and art school because i was learning these skills and crafts mm-hmm. and then getting to like develop a style through those mediums and you know it was very physical and i think yeah something i always notice that's really different between us is that i'm like very happy to exist like 90% online, my art. Like, I mean, yeah. I'm happy. Like, I make a lot of stuff for Instagram, and that's it. It's, it's a whole life, and never question it. Feel yeah. good about it. And I just think you, I can't imagine you being okay with that. Yeah, I just, like, everything I made was just, uh, when I first, the other thing that drew me to printmaking was this idea of, there was, most of the art that I was making, I was making because I liked the way it looked. So, mm-hmm. The idea of like making a painting that I really liked and then selling it, the monetary like part of it was really nice because you're like, oh, I get paid to make something. Yeah. But then that thing's now gone forever, from like my view at least. So yeah. So the thing that was appealing to printmaking was this idea that I could make multiple things, which I think resonates with like a lot of artists. This idea yeah. of how do you share your art that's accessible and not just only to people that because so many times people that can afford that art don't fully appreciate the way that other people. So it's. Uh-huh. Printmaking just was like a natural draw for me because I really liked just the process and the ability to share the work. So I started making these kind of like, really I think the first phase of making work that's kind of in the same vein of what I do now is started making these kind of zines, like these small, that was like, I kind of got exposed to this, I don't know, what it wasn't that big of a scene when I first started doing it and there was a couple like people that were in my school that were really like doing these awesome books and I was like, oh, I want to want to make things like this. So I started making all these kind of small, just small press books. I was screen printing and kind of trying to add weird little things into them. Mm-hmm. Stuff that I hadn't seen in a book that I was like trying like to... Easter eggs. Yeah, so like... like printing wise and Yeah, so like wise. The, probably the best book that I made was this book that was like packaged in side cereal and that was kind of like... Yeah. The first time I really was like, oh, People like, there's like an absence of. Was this that called thing. Space Junk? So that so that was Space Junk Two. Okay, and explain that a little bit more. So, like what that was. So originally there was 
uh, I printed this book. It was just going to be like a really nice screen printed book. And then I was trying to think of a packaging to it. So then I made these cereal boxes that I screen printed. So the book became the prize inside. In the cereal. So basically I was trying to like be like, because I wanted, the, I knew it had to be in a more expensive book. So you're like, well, you're just buying expensive <laughs> cereal, but you're getting a free book. So it's really not an expensive so it's, book. And if you, you know, it was actually, it was a cereal box that was screen printed with your artwork on it. And then you open it up and then uh, sealed yeah. cornflakes. Yeah, there's probably cornflakes. Yeah. I think there's actually a YouTube promotional video we'll, that I made. We'll link it up. It's yeah, got like yeah. a Money Mark song on it. And then inside, the prize in the box was your zine that yeah. was screen printed. It was, I think it was 150 of them, which now doesn't seem that big because you're like, oh yeah, you can make 150 of things. But like back then, it was like screen printing like 64 pages yeah. and then like hand cutting and making all these books. So it was pretty, it was pretty intense. But what, do you, what, what was the core thing that you wanted to get out of that extensive approach like you know what what were you trying to what drove you to do that i mean i think initially it was like each book i was trying to do i was trying to outdo like be competitive with myself like make a book that was better than the last up book the ante yeah so yeah. it was just kind of like thinking of i don't know i got i was taking these artists book class but i still and that and a lot of that tended to be like more like i don't know skill based where it was like i was made this crazy intricate bound book mm-hmm. which was i don't know it was cool, but I was just more interested in, I wanted the experience to be the, the bigger takeaway and not mm-hmm. like how well it was bound. I think about one of the things I talk about on the podcast all the time is like um, how important like baking wow factor into whatever you're doing. And I think early on, if you don't have the chops to bake in wow factor in the actual, you know, prow- prowess of your like... Uh, skills or whether you like maybe you're not fantastic at you know drawing or maybe um, you know your ideas aren't amazing that just like sheer brute force like what you did is like built like spent just crazy amount of time and energy in the details and that comes across in delight and early on for me it was like how can I draw just like the most as more more lines than anyone's ever drawn <laughs> yeah. and just have like because I don't have anything else yeah. uh, and then it's interesting to watch you as you go along trying to get that same wow factor from in such a more economical way yeah so I feel like that project the whole really is like kind of the precursor to a lot of the things because it's like doing this big project for this one experience or even like the book itself like the, the drawings are still I don't know they're, it's like they're good like, they're it's, funny, too. It's changed, but, like, all... Just be the, like these really long, stupid setups for a really bad pun. And that's kind of what, like, some of my... <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's, like, half of my work sometimes is. It's, like, you make this huge thing only to have, like, this really kind of... I don't know. I, I don't know where I title. heard it, but someone said, like, there's one way of defining delight as, like, spending loads of time with something that seems kind of inconsequential. And so when someone comes across something that where someone's taken all this time and energy to foster this very small thing, yeah. it's like a really delightful experience, yeah. which is like what I think about your products a lot, where you have all these really uh, simple ideas that are really funny or, or like a pun, um, but you've crafted them like a serious product Yeah, designer. no. I was talking to someone, I think it was at the show in New York, 
I'm trying to like describe <laughs> the collection to him, and I and I bid I bid everything as like everything's like this nice clean like presentation, so it's like a really well dressed guy in a business suit who then tells like an unexpected fart joke. <laughs> so that's like that's like what like, yeah. That's like, if it my, takes you off guard. Yeah, so it's like yeah. it's that the setup of it is just unexpected. So you're approaching like this. So 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 many of the things that that I'm starting to do are like overlooked, uh-huh. which is good. Which is great. Yeah. Like even like the new napkin holder that did really well because people passed it and they just like thought it was a book. But yeah. It's just like a bent piece of steel that ha- has napkins in it. But it's meant to look like a book. Yeah. It's yeah. called the napkin novel. Well, yeah. So we'll link it. So. I love it. But yeah, it's like, I think it's things like that that I'm, like the whole purpose of the piece is to like, when you realize what it is, it has that surprise. You know what? It reminds me of something I've been thinking a lot about is, you know, you have a market, which is like product design, but then how do you stand out within that market? And I think a lot of it comes down to what I would call like your side plot or the twist in the story. Like... You know, when I hear someone who like really, really loves to make people laugh, I kind of always tell them, well, don't be a stand-up comedian because there's like no harder way to like make people laugh. Like be a priest. Yeah. You will get people on the floor. Like, and I think in that same way that you bring this like humor to something, to a market that doesn't have very much humor in a lot of ways, especially the high end stuff. Yeah. Uh, And it makes your stuff really pop out. Uh, Yeah. So I think that's really interesting. Um, all right. So you've had your hands on fine art, curating galleries, used to run a gallery that you've founded, uh, graphic design, sculpture, illustration, printmaking. Uh, was there a point where you had to cut some things loose or kind of really focus on one thing? It was really like the end of 2012. That's like when I had my hands in probably the most pies. And it was really hard because I was enjoying and I felt like I was doing pretty well in all the things I was doing but it was just I was trying to grow too many things at once yep and so and that was around the time when we kind of decided it kind of we were at like basically this kind of fork in the road and we decided that it made probably the most sense to kind of move out of the gallery space and spend less of my time kind of curating these free experiences that ultimately I think still have a certain payoff now, yeah. but at the time it was just really hard on us financially and time just to be pouring that much. So that was when I kind of started developing a lot of the products, um, or when they, I guess when they started being realized. A lot of them I was doing while I was in that work phase in 2010, um, and so that kind of marked a point where I cut that off and kind of really played down a lot of my illustration and other artwork that I was doing at the time to put on pause to really invest that time in developing products um, more and getting them kind of more like scalable. So I spent time figuring out re-engineering different parts and trying to line up with other fabricators and that so that I could basically start manufacturing some of these ideas. Mm-hmm. So that I think it was a really hard point. I remember talking to you multiple times of feeling guilty almost yeah. for not... I don't know, making illustrations or doing, or making like my art anymore. Mm -hmm. And I still was doing it. There's still some stuff on the back burner. Yeah. But it was, it was, it was weird to make the, or to cut out something that 
was one an income income source and just like such a fulfilling thing for me. Yeah. But at the same time, I couldn't grow the products. Um, so that was like a really hard point of trying to discern where the where to take that work. And I think there's a lot of ways of cutting this. Uh, it can sound like a really privilege thing which to degree it is I can see that too but I think in order to really like hit your tipping point there comes a time where you're not like it's it's really easy early on to be like okay I'm doing five things that make me want to puke because I hate them so much yeah. I'm doing one that I like I'm gonna cut one of the things that makes me puke out yeah no it was it was less like it but it's not like, like that no. we didn't have like these two bountiful harvests that we were like which one should we like no it was literally it was like these are two sources of income and they're still both aren't meeting what we need. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, it was definitely a, it was a scary sacrifice to say like, let's like basically put, put all our eggs in one basket for this thing. That's hardly making enough to provide for our family. So it wasn't. So I, and I, yeah, I totally agree. And I, I, and so it's not about like, Oh, I've got, I'm so privileged to sit on the throne and, and just pick which one sounds fun. But I also think that, when you're when you're early on and you've got a job that you hate versus some you're doing some side stuff that you love it's easy to pick between bad and good yeah. it's like oh i'll get rid of the bad as soon as possible but i think once you get to a place where all your options seem pretty good um and you're trying to determine which one which one could be great yeah then it becomes really difficult to like determine which one is that yeah what do you think it was about the product design stuff that you knew that maybe it had a higher ceiling or something yeah i think for me it was just kind of more looking at kind of more from a business kind of mentality and looking at what's like what what role that could i have that would lend to be the most scalable Uh option that could be renewable every year and for me i never really saw myself as a full-time illustrator um, and when I was doing it, it was like the most physically taxing thing that I was doing mm. just cause it required so many jobs to kind of seamlessly line up to work yeah. really well. Cause at the time I wasn't doing like huge jobs. A lot of it was like projects that were like one or two day projects and uh-huh. it was really hard to reserve that abil- availability to just do that and then work with these kind of weird hours. And then I kind of looked at it as... In order for me to make a living as an illustrator, I looked at the amount of products I had versus on the products side, I could make one or two projects each year and those would kind of, that same thing I could harvest year mm-hmm. after year if I, if I did it well. And so for me, it kind of was looking at how can I bring in like renewable income? Mm-hmm. And so the products just kind of really lent well because it was a lot more work that didn't pay up front, but... If it was successful, it had potential for, I don't know. A yeah, a bigger ceiling and like more, you know, m- more margin time-wise. Yeah. And, I, you know, so I feel like you made that decision in a very like pragmatic way and I think in a business way. And I think often a lot of artists shy away from doing that because they feel like that's going to ruin the art. There's a lot of, you know, there's always been a lot of talk about like making art decisions based on business is like going to ruin the art or whatever. Now on the other side of that, and you can see your day to day now, however many years later, what, four years later, um, do you think your fears about being creatively fulfilled 
heading down this road that was kind of working. Um, do you think, what would you tell yourself back, back then if you were saying, hey, I don't know, I'm afraid to let go of illustration because I don't know if I'm going to be stoked about these products in four years. Yeah, I think, I, I think in the moment I always loved illustration while I was like doing the project in the middle yeah. of it. But it wasn't what like excited me. Like I really enjoyed just the the work of it. But the things that I would always come back to that I like kind of still resonated with me that I was seeking was like project based things. Uh-huh. So I just I think I just went down the illustration road because I don't know it, it seemed like a thing to do. That's yeah. my next question actually though is like because this is really tough to answer. For a lot of people, like, why do we feel like we need to do something that maybe is not really on in the cards for us, or yeah. like whatever it is, um, and it's and it doesn't have to be cosmic or anything. Yeah. But I think you know what was the pressure of that you're putting on yourself to to do it. Yeah, I think it just with I don't know. I think early on too, like when you work as an illustrator, even though you are working with art directors, it's still like one of the most I don't know, in terms of like art jobs, like you get to really use your voice and make uh-huh. your work and it's being applied to something. And so there was like that part of it where you weren't just one small piece. It was literally you're like get to make your work yeah. for a project. So that was like really exciting because other than like the the briefs and like the art director's the art director's feedback, it really was like you you making a piece of art. And mm-hmm. So if, I don't know, I... I think I wonder for me personally, I feel like often my biggest distractions are um okay, before I say this, I'm way more of an egomaniac than you. So like that I'll put that on the table just instantly. I know that like you're one of the most egoless guys I've ever met. So that being said, I think that for me, my ego can be a distraction of like it's really easy to want to do a project that like you're the face of the project. I haven't showed uh, you the tattoo of myself <laughs> on my arm. <laughs> but it's true, you know, like, and I feel like uh, over the past couple of years, there were a bunch of directions that I think I was, there's a, there's, there were probably lots of good reasons, but yeah. one of the driving reasons was that would leave a sexier, like, legacy or something. Oh, uh, yeah. It's like your name under the art piece. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I, I, around the same time, too, I started, like, I don't know, removing, thinking, I don't know, myself not having work to be, like, associated with me. Like, one of the first projects that I removed my name from was that, that the, it's now called, like, the Merchandise uh-huh. Trademark Collection, <laughs> where, it's, where I made this sweatshirt, and I, I remember going back and forth. It's just a sweatshirt that says sweatshirt. Yeah. And then I later spawned, like, a whole collection of objects that just say what they are. But uh-huh. I still, to this day, don't put my name or anything on it. Just because the whole project lent itself well to just being was, anonymous, yeah. yeah. So it was. It wasn't about the artist making it. It was like it was the. I think that was the first time where I fully put the concept above any other. Like who made it, how it was made. It was totally like, egoless. That was like the first part I started shedding because before all my work in undergrad and all this stuff was so much about who made it, how it was made, and then then that was like kind of the turning point where I sh- shifted from. It no longer ma- matters to me how it was made, but if it was worth making. Uh-huh. And so it was like, this was the first time I made something that was solely concept-driven. And yeah. In my name, 
attached to it. I mean, obviously, most people know that it is my project. Can you explain that project a little bit? Yeah, so the it was kind of... I, the first reason why I made a sweatshirt was my dad's um, company. I always grew up, they had like these like Nair construction sweatshirts. And it was such yeah. like a, a staple part of like my family. Like they have them fully stocked in the lake house. Like everywhere you went, it was like if you're cold, you like... But on a Nair sweatshirt. Yeah, it was like... It oh, was I like, love that. I didn't like, know that part so, of the story. So we, everyone, growing up, we always had these sweatshirts. And it was always my favorite sweatshirt. And so I was like, man, I want to make like our family's sweatshirt. Yeah. And so I was trying to think of a sweatshirt design. And I don't know what made me think of it, but I was like, what if it just said sweatshirt? Yeah. And then, um, and then it kind of just... And it says now, it says sweatshirt on the sweatshirt, trademark, TM. Yeah. And the trademark thing was just kind of this like stupid idea of like... Trademark. Yeah, of just making it... Because I was trying to think of like, what's the most... What would be the best sweatshirt design? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking like, oh, okay. The sweatshirt design. Yeah, yeah so yeah. it's like, it's the most iconic thing that you could do. So, it, so the idea of trademarking it just was like this kind of just like weird, hilarious way of of owning. Like, this is this it. Is this, this is the it. sweatshirt. This yeah. is what a sweatshirt is. That. That's so, so like, good. the whole collection has just been trying to find the most, like, so like, everything's no frills. So it's like, a tote bag is just like, if you think of a tote bag, this is the tote bag. that The it, tote bag. Yeah, yeah, so it's just plain canvas tote bag. No, like... Decorative strapping or stitching, just tote bag. And yeah. then same thing with like a tank top. And a, and there's a mug, a screwdriver, a mouse pad, uh, a cup. Yep. Um, a button. Mug. There's a, yeah. Did you ever say, maybe you ever said mug. Yeah. Um, I feel like there's another one. A bumper sticker. Bumper sticker that says bumper sticker. Uh, and uh, so I feel like this is like really, really important. I just want to unpack that idea a little bit because... For me, some of my biggest style uh, elements that I developed were for uh, some local companies that I would work on for the side, where I was doing things that had nothing to do with me. They were all solution-based. It was all like, just this needs to do what it needs to do. has nothing to do with me. Nobody's ever going to see it that knows that I worked on it. And I kind of liken it to, I think, some of the people that are the best in the music industry have like side bands where they mess around yeah. uh, and they learn things and they bring stuff back to their serious stuff that they put their name to. Uh, I think of like um, Justin Vernon from Bon Iver or uh, Sufjan does it and uh, 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 what's the guy? Rostam from Vampire Weekend works on lots of different projects that are like really loose and you can kind of do whatever. It doesn't have to be a big statement. Um but there's, I, I found when I was doing those projects, at some point, it became so much more pure where it was like, all I really care about at the end of the day is that I make enough to like provide for family and in best case scenario, I enjoy the process of the stuff that I'm making. Yeah. Uh, like I just, it feels natural to be making that stuff. And sometimes when you get, if you can, I think it's always good to have those environments where you're allowed to play with nobody yeah. watching it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of like what the, a lot of the products was. And then it was kind of just this side project that became my, mm-hmm. my full-time work. Yeah. And so I wasn't... I mean, looking... when I'm, It's really hard because trying to look back and talk about something, the, like it's so much easier to see how the road's connected. You can see um, the dots. Yeah, exactly. But like, mirror. I didn't really... I was very like unintentionally like driving like this product design thing, uh-huh. which is kind of 
oh, I'd think of something like, oh, that might be cool to make. I'd just make it and then see, like, oh, if someone buys it, then maybe I'll do more. Yeah. So it was, like, a very, like, I don't know, the person that was probably the most, like, focused on it was you. Like, you got to do this. This is real. <laughs> I'm like, okay, yeah, whatever, do you? No, I kept no. telling you, yeah, yeah, I kept saying, like, there's something definitely happening yeah. with this. Yeah. Uh, it's like breadcrumbs. It's like, and I, you know, I think it's really important because I want, the next things I want to talk to you about, like, what did focusing on that look like and how did that pay off? And I want to go there. But before we do that, I think it's interesting to say that, like, everybody can go through these stages in different times. But for a lot of people, it happens in your 20s where you need to just try tons of things. So telling yeah. them to focus is probably bad advice. Yeah. Yeah, I remember, like, all while I was in... Uh... In school, I had a drawing teacher who basically said, it was really probably the best advice I ever had in school. He was saying, basically, every six months, you should be able to look at your work and say, I can do this better, or I should be doing something, and always be like in a learning phase. Yeah. And, because I remember there was like this idea after graduating, being like, this is the work I'm going to make now forever. Mm-hmm. And, and him basically saying like, don't be like set on this work undergrad like liking it. Like you should, yeah. there's a pretty good chance you should be eh, like feeling kind of not super about like the work you made in undergrad. Like, yeah. Oh, not to say that that work was bad, but the, it's more about saying like you should be continuing to grow from that. Yeah. And so I think, and I've used that a lot. I've said, I've, I've like, we've talked about that principle and I really like it where I can look six months back on my Instagram today and be like, what was that? Yeah. No, it's, which I think is super healthy because it just shows you that you're still, learning as soon mm-hmm. as you stop learning it's really hard to grow or i don't know experiment because like all any good idea I've ever had has come from experimenting mm-hmm. or per, just like kind of i don't know playing around with an idea that anytime i'm trying to like steer or like squeeze something out of it it yeah. just is the wrong it doesn't motives, have, when you're like, like yeah you squeeze it too hard and you can't have, yeah, yeah it just doesn't work i think that we're in this weird time though where you're putting I don't feel like we've created a good code of how to deal with the internet as an artist because, you know, I feel like a lot of people coming out of graduation feel like, all right, now I have to choose my style like it's a, like it's, like they're a cartoon picking their outfit for the rest of their seasons forever. Yeah, no, that's how it was. That's why I was like, felt this like weird, like art guilt of like, okay, well, I made this. If I start doing this, then do I take this off my online portfolio? <laughs> yeah. It was like, no, it doesn't matter. Like, no. It doesn't... And you're never... And, uh, and the other thing I think about that is like, if that... It's like a lottery ticket, that, that approach where you say, okay, I picked this outfit, this style, and you, if you happen to be the lucky person that that becomes like the next big thing... Yeah, that might be a great season to go into, but then it's going to phase out and it's yeah. going to be over. Your and your thing's over. What yeah. rather than and I, Seth Godin talks about it like the monkeys. They have this giant time and then nobody cares. Yeah. And I but if you look at someone like Bob Dylan, his career has been super messy to where there were tons of times where people were like, "Oh, I can't believe he's doing electric or I can't believe he's doing gospel or whatever." But we still were thinking about him today and thinking yeah. about what he did and um, I think with the internet, there's all this pressure because it's all documented. Yeah. Um, I feel like my best projects that I've ever gotten have been like, I'll like ask someone like, oh, did you see this? Like, I've never been to your website. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> totally. I mean, yeah, so yeah. Like, like all my good art gigs have generally just been from someone who has like a 
a, like I don't know, an old book that I made or some like mm-hmm. random somehow been given some print as a gift or something and then asked me to make something else. So there's like I think just shedding that um motivation that you need to like be what people think you are. And perfectly curated. From yeah, no, it's it's super silly because it's just I don't know. It's, that's what the thing is. If you pick the wrong outfit from the get go, you're just doomed for the rest of your career. Yeah. So, yeah, I've always been a fan of like you know, nope, just keep reinventing it yeah. year after year because until until and this is where I wanted to shift until you get that momentum, which yes. is kind of what happened. Where now you're not doing that. Right now, you're in the thick of building an actual business. Yeah. And so, how, what were the things that you did to really invest in the product design direction? Um, a lot of it was like trying to, um, before I always just did everything on the cheap. It was, it was always like DIY. Yeah, exactly. You'd be like, oh, well, I'll do this and just, I know I can cover my costs, but cut, sell a couple of these. The, the really, like, as soon as you like paid or invested something, you're like, well, I'm going to work to get a return because I've invested yeah. like capital and not just my time and resources. So, so it even investing and focusing changes the way that you interact with it. Yeah. I think there's just like, there's like, like every, and I feel like so many things work on this. Like there's, there's like a buy-in that you have to have to participate. Yeah. So it's whether it, for some people it's like the first time you like commit to hosting your own website or something like that, which is a pretty incremental step. But as soon as you start paying for things, you should be expecting like I don't know a return if you're mm-hmm. doing it from a business perspective. So for me, first I thought like okay, I'm gonna make. I think the first thing that I did was I I made a real batch of the watch clocks that I did, where it's like that huge five foot yeah. wrist watch. And so prior to that, I was making them myself, um, and it looked good, but the quality wasn't quite what I wanted. So I found this place in I think it's in Minnesota, and they they did the first batch of them, and it was like the first time. I was like, okay, I made like a, it felt, it's the first time I felt like I made a real product because it felt uh, like the first time I was receiving something that I designed but didn't necessarily make. Yeah, you didn't necessarily manufacture it in-house or yeah. whatever. Yeah. And so that was really the first time it, to me, it felt like a product because I didn't, it felt less like an addition piece of art. Yeah. More felt like, okay, now I'm making a product. And when you had your skin in the game like that, how did you, did you approach selling them differently? Yeah, because I was like, I'm like, well, I paid for these, so now I got to sell them. Yeah. It was it was no longer I'll make these as people buy them. It was I made this thing, so now I need to try and sell. So what'd you these. do? So I tried to contact every store um, that I thought they might be interested in. Just kind of just did like the the book salesman route. Yeah. Like just found stuff and say like, hey, I'll send you samples, and then got my sold through my first batch of those. Uh, did you have to research these stores? Like, yeah, I think just... I forget how I found a lot. I think a lot of times it just kind of went through and found other designs that I kind of liked, maybe companies that more mid-sized companies, and see where they might stop things, selling them. and yeah. then just kind of go through there. It wasn't really. Uh, but again, that little that little bit of investment, I feel like I see students a lot uh, aren't willing to. I'll, I'll say, okay, you want to be an animator, and they say, yeah, I want to be an animator. Who do you want to work for? Pixar, and you're like. Okay, yeah. like so does a million other people. Yeah. Like you need to put the time in and research. What are the steps to get there? What are the studios that you know are the like smaller farms of like yeah. the minor leagues for those things? And that takes you. You're gonna have to spend some time like looking into it. Yeah, yeah. I think the the, the other motivation or encouraging part was it was easy to justify making these things when I was getting outside people basically requesting them or something. So I started getting press just from other places so that was 
that made it a lot easier to make this investment because it felt less risky. Because it getting felt demand. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it was. It it would have been a lot. I would I would have had a harder time making them if I didn't already feel like there was a market. But the reason why I made that product change was I was like at kind of capacity on mm-hmm. what I could self produce. I think that that's like a really good lesson, and it's something they talk about in the startup world a lot, and they call it the MVP, which is like the minimal viable product. You make something on the cheap, DIY. Yeah. You make a good thing. You put your time into it, and then you see how it goes. And that yeah. I think that, that that comes back to this idea of like your 20s or if you're older just getting started, your first stage, trying tons of things and seeing if there's any purchase with any different arm. And then as you start to get that information, those breadcrumbs of like, oh, people are buying this or people yeah. are interested in this, then hedging your bets and betting a little bit bigger. Yeah. Um, but you did it slowly, but you still had to, there were still moments where you had to take risks. You were oh, like, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And so what what were the next things you did? Because I think a lot of people have been there where they're yeah. like making products, they order a batch, but there's you've actually taken it even further. Yeah, so then kind of all throughout, so around like, that would have been the first batch of those I made, I think it was 2011 or 2012, the first like production run. I was making them on and off since 2009. And then kind of all throughout this, there was like this light that I made that um, started slowly creeping up. and The crane selling, light? Yeah, so I started selling more and more of those every year. And so around that same time, um, I think the first one I made and sold was in 2010. And then in 2012, I was starting to do a pretty high volume of them. So I was kind of went back through and combed through and kind of optimized a couple parts and then really just started just making more and more of them. And then um, there was ne- I never really, I don't remember ever like trying to sell. It was just kind of as the people bought them, like they would tell their friends and this and then it kind of just slowly... Yeah. So that's kind of been the success of that has kind of been outside of me because mm-hmm. I haven't really. Fortunately, it was just it worked out perfectly where I made a product for myself that other people really yeah resonated with, and then that was that gave me the, the really that was like the cash flow project. Uh-huh. So I've always just kind of used those kind of things to develop a new line. So from that, I started doing more lighting projects. So I started naturally working with more architects and designers who were like hey we really like this light but do you have anything that's like a chandelier or anything uh-huh. and so that those people's needs became where the collection kind of grew you let the like customer information tell you where to go yeah. next so, yeah because i didn't because before i was designing things for my house so if my house didn't need it i didn't really have a motivation to do it because i wasn't being given that prompt to make yeah so when i started working on the more commercial projects it was just really uh, i got more excited about that because it grew outside of my When you find that with thing with the momentum, it goes from when you're exploring and you're doing all that exploration, trying everything, it feels a lot like rolling a boulder up a hill. But when you find that thing that starts to pick up, it's like snowballing down a hill. Yeah. And that's kind of what happened. You found this thing that started resonating and all of a sudden it's like cyclical making itself, yeah. making the products come out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, and I think, I, I see like a bunch of really interesting things happening there. One of them being... Seth Godin, the marketing guy, says that uh, if you make something, like make tons of stuff, and whenever you make things, if, if you show 10 friends and they don't tell anyone else about it, like you don't have something great on your yeah, hands. Yeah, no, exactly. And that was, 
I I knew that that light had potential once when my grandfather bought it. Yes. My my grandpa, he's like the nicest guy in the world, but he's not going to say he likes something if he yeah. doesn't like it. And he buys things very like he's probably like I mean he's very he's the most frugal person I've met. Right. So he buys shoes that have like lifetime warranties. So he's That's not going to like go out to some store and buy a random light. But he bought it, and I was like, "Whoa, there's something there." Yeah, yeah. it wasn't he. He bought it because he was interested. I mean, he was always like, like vocally supported, encouraged me, but um, he wouldn't just buy something as like, "Oh, oh, here, let me help out my grandson." Uh-huh. He, was, he bought it because he saw he a need it. for it. So I was like, "Whoa, good. this is pretty cool." My grandpa bought. And you're, and then you're also like breaking outside of the little corner of design because like all, all of a sudden someone, a regular person, can yeah, kind of see like, the value of this. Yeah, thing. like oh, this serves like a need that I didn't have before. I mean, obviously, I think probably half of it was the fact that there's an element. Yeah. There's no way there's not an element, but it yeah. totally, yeah, it resonated outside of our little corner, yeah. which meant that there's something a little bit uh, more there. I think the other thing that's really interesting is that you one of the things you did early on was another thing you hear a lot about, which was like scratching your own itch. It was like you needed a certain type of lighting and you fixed a problem for yourself. Yeah. And we talked about that a lot where like, um, what's the thing that you said about Amy Poehler? Oh, uh, yeah. So like, uh, I remember I was listening to um, Fresh Air. just like that Terry Gross yeah. thing. And it was an Amy Poehler episode and she was talking about, I think Terry asked her like, do you watch... Parks and Rec, like mm-hmm. as if she walked. Watched so, her own show. Yeah, and she was kind of like, like, of course I watched yeah. my, that's, like, that's why I made it, because it's, yeah. it's what I find, like, that's my kind of humor. Yes. And so, like, for me, that was, like, always interesting if you went to an artist studio they didn't have their paintings on the wall. Because, like, that was, like, half my walls have my work, because that's why I made it. Cause because I wanted, you're like, you know what I need in that wall? Yeah. Is this painting. Like a blue car would look really good on yeah, the wall. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I don't know, that was, like, for me, for the light, that's, like, I had lights in our house because that's why I made them. I was like, this is something I want to look at and this functionally meets all the needs. So, and that was, yeah, it's always just, all my work has always been, I want to make, I'm making it because it doesn't exist. Originally I was like, I have, when I started making those watch clocks, people, I had a couple of people order them thinking it was a wristwatch. <laughs> Only to find they found some like, it looks like a, heavyweight championship belt or yeah, like yeah. a five foot tall wristwatch like oh, this is gonna fit on my wrist yeah like a flavor flavor of wristwatches yeah. and so they sent them back and were kind of disappointed because they i don't know we're after this watch so originally i was like oh man i should make a watch like this but then i found like this Dieter Rand's like perfect watch yeah so I was yeah like, okay well i don't need to make a watch i found the watch i want so there's no need for me to design, yeah. design it so the same thing a lot of times i'll go through and I'll, I'll if i'm trying to think of project like oh, i'll try and design a coat hook then I'll find a super nice coat hook. I'm like, okay, don't that's a coat hook that. I want to buy. Yeah. So I don't need to buy that. Yeah. And so I think that's just the way that I've always tried to make things. There's I a mean, real purity in that. And I think also it's like uh, often a lot, I think you see a lot of people get into art and think, oh, I could do that. All right? and, and there's this condescending nature to being like, I know what this audience wants. Yeah. I'm going to make this thing. But it's when it's something that you actually know you need and yeah. there's a hole it's like, oh, this is, it's, I don't know, it's like a very democratic or like equal playing ground. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I love that. And I think about it like for me personally, often what happens if someone approaches me for an editorial illustration or like some, you know, stickers or whatever, my first inclination is to think, okay, what do they want? 
Yeah. Like, what do they want from me? Or what, what would a real illustrator do? Or like, there's a billion different mindsets that you can approach it with that get you going down an impure path, yeah. like a path that's not going to lead you where you would tend, yeah, where, where you, you would say, go. Like, what would be the coolest sticker? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, like yeah. What, and then kind of design your work around that. Yeah. Like starting, sorry if I like. No, man. Snagged uh, your. <laughs> the punchline. You said it. I'm going to kick him over. <laughs> no, but I, no, but that's what I, I kept thinking. What always I keep going back to is like, if I'm reading the Boston Globe, what do I, what would I want to oh, yeah. see? Like what? What would I? What picture would I want to see to this article? I'd be like, "Whoa!" And that was the thing I loved about doing the illustration. There was like this, like, I mean, this when the, you were doing them too, and like the Bloomberg. Oh, such a was, good time! It was like a golden age. The golden age, yeah. But it was like, oh man, it was like the best projects because talk was like, about that a little bit. So like, there was my that was what wise kind of stayed in doing the illustration for when and kind of was hesitant to pull away from it. So it's like this perfect project where there was. Bloomberg had their um, online op-eds, so the just like a newspaper, um, the editorials were written by staffers. The editorials were done by um, by other means, and the people, the staff there, and then all the op-eds for the guest writers. Did you? Sorry, did I? I missed it. Did you explain what other means is? Oh yeah. So other means was like this. They were basically like the people that were employed by Bloomberg that were doing um, all the art direction. They're like a studio. Yeah. It sounded like what you said was like, well, the other Just illustrations were done by other means. Other means, oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> capital O, capital M, yeah. other means. Yeah. Um, sorry. And so it was such like this awesome project because it just, it worked the same way the newspaper would. Uh-huh. So they did these beautiful illustrations for all the editorials that were always done in the same like Bloomberg blue, but then all the, the guest op-eds were done by guest, guest illustrators. Yeah. And so like this... There's this perfect, like, um, it was just such a great format, and you were given, like, this pretty heavy-handed, like, political or business, like, really, like, a heavy text that was like not... The, like, you know, the economic uh, projections for China <laughs> yeah, exactly. in the next and, six months. Yeah, yeah, and so you have to do this illustration, but you had such a nice real estate on the webpage where it's like this big, huge rectangle, and then the article. So it was like... And they and, wanted you to do basically the weirdest thing. Yeah. yeah. So it was just, oh my gosh, it was like the best projects in the world. Yes. Uh, and they were hiring a lot of our friends and it was like, yeah, just a, a super good time. And they were just really trusting art directors. So they just, they were, they, they were picking people who they knew could handle those projects. And so mm-hmm. you would send a sketch and there would be revisions if you kind of missed the points or didn't yeah. quite catch it. But for the most part, it was just like a really well steered ship so then they trusted the people they were hiring so you could just kind of just do this really awesome illustration but it had this great time frame where it was like contact by between 9 and 11 sketches by 2 approval by 3 final by 5 or 6 yeah. so and then so, so they like, would call you and it'd be like if you don't have the day free you can't do it yeah yeah and so you'd get these things and I remember like just alright I'm dropping what I have for the day and just doing this but it was such like this awesome pressure cooking of trying to make something you feel good about having your name under in this quick amount of time yeah it's a really interesting experiment like a thought experiment and i the other side of that though and what made them really good as art directors is uh it's best case scenario where i would end up making you know i'd send them like three or four sketches and the first one inevitably is always one where you're like what would an illustrator do for (laughs) bloomberg and you do it and you're like okay 
it sucks, but it does the point. So whatever. And I do another one. And then by the third one, I'll be really loose and be like, all right, yeah. what would I do? Like what yeah. would be so funny to see in Bloomberg? And they'd almost always yeah. pick that one. It was yeah. yeah, they were super good. And I love that process. But I, I found that to be when I, when I get a project, I'm really stuck. Just think like, what would you want to see? Like it's, de- yeah, it's really clarifying. Um, another thing I wanted to talk about. So before we go off on one, we were talking about how anything worth doing, this is another Seth Godin thing. I don't know why that's, the, it's a Seth Godin episode. Uh, anything worth doing has like a moat built around it. Like there's all these places where if you don't put the money up and buy in, you don't get to go to the next round of play. Yeah. And I think in the product design world, you went up against several of these. What were yeah. some of the other ones? I think, so when I started doing the lighting, the biggest kind of like moat for that was there was like this UL listing. It yeah. was like such, I remember first getting into it, it was like any commercial project always first question was are these UL listed and basically all that is for people that are fam- aren't familiar with lighting is it's basically a certification that just proves that you go through a series of testing for any light fixture that you make so that it's up to the standard that's it's like this 350 page manual so yeah. anyways so it's something that requires not only the proper testing but also the finances to pay for that service uh-huh. and so I forget when I did that but I think it was maybe in the 2013 14 uh, maybe it was 2014. And so when I did that, it was like the ceiling kind of came off the projects. Because before it was only, I could only do like these smaller level projects where they weren't maybe, they, they were doing smaller things so it didn't require that. Yeah. And so, but it's such like this big obstacle where it's a significant chunk of change that deterred a lot of smaller designers from doing this. So you couldn't get into these bigger jobs whether it was a hospitality project or a huge office yeah so once i did that it was it was kind of um the turning point where i no longer because before i would never even bother approaching someone that i knew i couldn't do the job uh-huh. but now that, that that ceiling went off it was like okay we can go after these huge projects now and we can actually we can be in as big as projects that people can imagine yep and so that the thing that happens is you take this money investment and then time and energy investment to figure out all this because it's probably yeah. you know kind of complex. Uh, not only does that take off the ceiling of like projects you approach, do you think it changed the, your mindset or the way that you saw your business and where it was going? Yeah, I think it, around those times I was you're making you're starting to run things like a business where you're yeah. you're putting up capital to gain capital. So it's like the really the first time you're like letting. I don't know, the the project make money instead of mm-hmm. you be the person that's kind of has to always be breathing life into it. So it's, I think it was, there's just, anytime that I've paid for something, I've worked harder for it. So yeah. the same thing went when I hired full-time person. So Alex Brokamp, who's been working with me for the last year, um, I had always had like kind of just part-time help through bigger projects. But when I hired him full-time, it was it was the biggest investment I've ever made because I'm paying him close to probably what I would have been making a year or two prior Yep. in basically saying like, okay, by paying him, I need to make sure I'm gaining the, getting the value out of that. So there's just so many things that paying for anytime you buy something, you appreciate that better. So mm-hmm. if you buy anytime you, I don't know when I buy like, like an expensive chair, not 
It's a relative term. So when I basically stopped buying that's a like nice chairs, a fifteen dollar chair. But anytime you like pay for something that's more than just something that serves a function, it you changes know, you too. Yeah, it changes your appreciation of that, and so and you just I don't know you're more careful about it. Yeah. And so when I hired him, I became more careful of how not only I was spending his time, but how time how I was spending my time. So it made me manage my schedule better. We had set hours we were working. Mm-hmm. So all these things just. You can you can get them in line outside of that, but for me it was just it's hard to I don't know it's hard for me to cook without a fire. Yeah. And so man. like for me giving like my, myself these obstacles, I have to come. So it's like I have to make enough to pay for him. So that all yeah. these things it would just it put more pressure on the business. So I was more motivated. Yeah. To get to get my investment back. And even like I know for myself going from early days of like working on the kitchen table on little tiny freelance yeah. projects to like, all right, that room of the house is going to be all mine. Yeah. And you build that out. All yeah. of a sudden, your mindset changes a little bit more. Like, I'm kind of serious. And then yeah. from that, going to think about, all right, I'm going to go pay for a studio outside of my house. And all of those things, if they're done in the right... I think there are different types of personality types that buy in too quickly, yeah. that end up at backfires. But there's a degree in which I've seen... Um, you know that mi- mindset's such a massive thing, and yeah. I, I go ahead. That's I was to say that's like the hardest thing to realize because I remember like graduated school, you'd see like these awesome students, like man, that'd be so cool. And it's such like this, I don't know. There's this veil. Yeah, exactly. And you see it, and you don't get to see the whole road. So having gone through that, it just it's a it's like I think I forget where I heard someone said it, but it's basically if you're I think maybe it was even you talking about like this ten thousand hours. Yeah, Most yeah. people were like. 2,000 hours, 2,080 hours in a year. Right. So like after five years, it's about 10,000 hours. So I think it's a Malcolm Gladwell thing. So if you're willing to put in that amount of time, if not, like it's, it's kind of silly to crave something that you're not invested in. So mm-hmm. like almost any person I've talked to, it's, it's everything has to be done in those increments. So yep. I did the same thing. I worked out of like a small desk in a side room and then it became the floor of a house and then we built a studio. There's probably other ones in between that. But yeah, yeah. It's always been... Um, like where I am now I would crave probably when I graduated school but it's just this long road and it's really hard because you always hear people talk about where they are now but you don't get to hear all like the, the backstory yeah exactly you don't get to see all their bruises yeah and so um, but I, I, I totally agree like when I invested in building my studio it was it was probably the biggest financial commitment that I had made prior to that because mm-hmm. I made because I built this I think it was maybe six months before I hired Alex. Um, and it just, it was, you just think about things differently because it's, it just matures you in a different way. I'm desperate. I'm not going to do this right now, but I'm desperate to figure out what the metaphor up for this is. <laughs> There's some <laughs> metaphor that like perfectly encapsulates like you, you know, you, you, you set up things right. And then you, it's kind of like, it's not the best one. I feel like I come up with something better, but it's kind of like, the goldfish like fills the tank. Yeah, it's not yeah. actually true, but I've researched it because I think it's a good metaphor. Yeah. But but it's true that like there's a degree to where you fill the tank. Like you get yeah. bigger to when you get the new bigger tank, you figure out how to like get yeah. bigger. And you always like make things like you always adapt spaces. Like you're like, oh, will this be good enough? I feel like me building the studio was like me buying like my first tailor-made suit. Yeah, like, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. I'm literally getting something that's made for me to like work in. Yeah. And it's, it's like a bigger investment than I would have ever made in it before. You're like, yeah, hey, <coughs> these pants fit good enough. Yeah. 
So uh, that is pretty much all my questions, but I wanted to just open it up to say, is there anything else that's been on your mind that you, I don't know, that you've been thinking about or the next steps, things that you're kind of mulling over right now? Yeah, I think like right now we have like a good like kind of project queue of like releasing some of the new houseware lines throughout the next year. Like we have like just a huge scroll of like ideas that are, um, that we're going to kind of continue and execute. So, so from like a project or like a business side, like those are some of like projects we're rolling out. But then on the art side, I have a couple like other bigger scale projects Mm -hmm. that I'm trying to line up. Um, if anyone's out there looking for a, a park <laughs> park designer. I want to design a kids park or adult park. Yeah, adult park. That sounds kind of <laughs> could, get, could get weird. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, 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 the big thing is, I just want to do. I'm. I've just been more and more interested in like these grand public art pieces, big big scale yeah, stuff. Like just things that I don't know. I'm just every year I like am trying to do. Before when I first was working on projects of working on 50 a year, then I was mm-hmm. working on 30, then 20, and then it kind of keeps going where I want to get to the point where I can work on like... Bigger scale, huge, but yeah. Yeah, projects. So, I don't know. I got to do that really nice panel mural last year where um, I don't, I still haven't properly documented it yeah. yet. But it was, it was for G. Or no, this was the one where it's like the the panels where you drive by. Yeah, yeah. And you see it's like... It's like a the, public one, yeah. yeah. So, I'm, I don't know. I'm trying to do more projects where... Um, it's something I've never done before. Do you find that, like, I think there's a lot of ways of explaining this, but that you kind of birth the vision in your mind of what you're looking for, and then it kind of materializes to a certain degree? I feel like the the best projects have always been, I'm, like, super into, like, a, a new artist that I've found, yeah. and then someone brings a project, and it's like this, I'm, like, extracting these two things. The perfect So, like, yeah, at that yeah. time, that's that project's perfect example of like I, I scored this awesome um Yakov Agam I'm probably saying it wrong but okay. it's just his last name's just A-G-A-M which yeah. is like basically is like mononym but okay. um and so I bought this book on uh Amazon it ended up being like a hand signed copy mm. <laughs> so I thought it was like a weird scribble but he his signature Crazy. is amazing he like literally took like three or four different colored markers and like held them in a fist and then signed his uh, name. So that's like crazy. A, like that's, really like awesome squiggle. Awesome. So he's like this just amazing, he's like an Israeli, uh, or was like Joseph Albers. Like he's like a color theorist, but then just his pace of work is just like exactly kind of what I'm after where he's making these really awesome paintings that then started to, uh, transform. And he made these, this, his system of paintings where they'd be on these, um, basically bent aluminum panels uh-huh. so as you walk or interpret them you're getting different vantage points yeah so yeah. it kind of constructs if you look at any pictures on the internet you'll find just all is just amazing work then he later started making all these when was sculptures. he making those things uh, probably like 60s and 70s yeah I, I think he passed in like early 90s right and so anyways i was i got this just beautiful monograph um and i was just really into all these works and then i was approached to do this mural project on this roadside building in downtown downtown Cincinnati, but the problem was, it's like down on the riverside, so it's only a, a roadside building. So there's no vantage point uh-huh. ever straight on, and since it's this like long, weird, corrugated building, a regular mural just painted on the side would serve no purpose because it would yeah. always be a skewed perspective, uh-huh. unless like when you're driving, you turn to your right like immediately, you get like a one second thing. Yeah, and so 
because I was looking at these kind of different shaped canvases that he was making, the idea kind of came to maybe have, instead of painting on the building, we paint on panels. Mm-hmm. And so they were, I think they would And up they're being, slanted panels. So or no, they, they actually just go perpendicular off the building. Oh, okay. And so, right, but yeah. they're spaced, I think, six feet apart. So you get, And so the yeah. front half of each panel is basically an image divided up equally. So when you're driving from the extreme side, you get the, the image together, the but then thing. the inside of each panel is an abstracted pattern. Uh-huh. So as you pass each one, each one is completely abstracted. <laughs> abstracted. So as you drive by, it literally has like this like um, like PowerPoint like but it, it, yeah like dissolves. Oh, that's so good. And, um, oh, so it kind of has like this weird, just the image kind of evaporates and turns to these abstract panels. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of just like a dream project because it was like. I got to just do something really weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, because originally I wanted to just do this like abstract um, painting that kind of was on the building or something. And then the building houses two different occupants who had two different visions. Mm-hmm. And so by adding the panels, there's two two sides. So there's an east and west view. Yeah. So there's actually two different images. And then on each panel, there's... So it's basically four paintings in one. That's so cool. It's like a really... That's awesome. It was an awesome project. I think, I think I might have the, I don't know. I, I think I have a picture of the design somewhere. But yeah. I need to get like a we'll drive. We'll try to link by. it. Yeah, you need like You're a little video. You're in Cincinnati. <laughs> go down Riverside Drive. Uh, you know the. I think there's so much to go on that, but I think, to me, it's like speaks to this idea of you have your like. I keep going to this metaphor. I don't know why, but it's that you have the front burner that takes all your attention, which is like your products and all that yeah. stuff. You have the back burner, which is like your smaller products that you kind of tend to a little bit, but they just yeah. kind of ha- they're going to cook themselves. But then in the you have this like crock pot on the side that you're constantly like <laughs> like throwing, what's cooking in what, the crock? Pot? Yeah, like just but you're throwing stuff in it, like just following your curiosities. Yeah, like you know, you, and you've always done that, like. You know, always still discovering new artists, reading new books, like just kind of stuff that picture books, reading picture <laughs> books, yeah, and uh, just. But you're always having like more ideas, and you might not always know where to place them. Yeah. But I think it's like the staying curious as an artist and staying inspired, even when you don't know why, even when you don't have a plan for it. Yeah. And it, to me, it seems like you can call it. You can look at it in a practical way, like scientifically, your brain when you've looked at something, is going to be more likely to try to find a house for that thing. I can see that being like really scientific, or I can see it being really mystical, where it's like when you, you know, birth these ideas that the universe like finds homes for them. Yeah. And, you know, I can see it any either way, but I think that it speaks to that idea of like continuing your growth and continuing yeah. letting it kind of unfold. Um, last thing... The final, final thing was, uh, <laughs> he just raised his eyebrows at me, uh, was, uh, when do you get ideas? Cause your ideas are very like solid. Like a lot of, I, like, I feel like my ideas are more loose. They're less like, here's the concept and it's very tight. Yeah. So like, when do you, when do they hit you? Um, my best places for ideas probably are the shower. Shower's uh-huh. like. Shower is super thinking time. Yes. That's like probably where I like unpack my ideas and like go through what if it's this? It's like this ask yeah. all like these questions in my brain back and forth. One of my favorite places 
to go is just to go to like stores I haven't gone to. Uh-huh. Like I remember the first time I ever found Menards, and it like yeah. blew my mind. It's like this is like <laughs> the coolest store, and just yeah. walking the aisles and yeah. seeing all these things, just these stupid objects. Some of them are like I don't know because for me it's always combining two things. So uh-huh. it's like trying to find like oh what if this was made in this material or something. So I just love going with like dollar stores. I don't get I don't go that often, but most of the time like if I'm in a new place, I just like. I just like kind of goofing and walking around places mm-hmm. and looking at weird things. I love the idea of it's a very unexpected place to look for like art products or designer goods yeah. to, to the inspiration. Like, but I find that that's where you're going to have a unique voice. Like you yeah. found this inspiration is very like, like for me personally, I feel like what's good about the podcast is it's not inspired by any other creative podcast. It's yeah. only inspired by business podcasts marketing books, like yeah. all this other stuff that's very like unsexy, not <laughs> ready, not ready to go. Like most people don't even have the palate to, to handle it. Yeah. Um, and I think the same goes for you. It's like people go to dollar yeah, stores, they're not going to feel inspired. That's but. how like my, I mean, half this like housewares collection was like literally like inspired by like a junk drawer. Yes. Like all these just random collection of these objects and then kind of enlarging them to give it a new use. Um, so that, I, I mean, there's, it really just, there's no rhyme or reason to when I get an idea. A lot of times it's like just bad jokes to yeah. like just thinking of like a really bad word pun. Yep. And then I'm like, oh, I should make like a project worth <laughs> <laughs> delivering that bad idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, it kind of just starts back and forth. But a lot of times it's just literally like, it'd be funny to walk like, this is his creative process. And it's literally a video of me, sit, me sitting, staring at a wall. My wife will be like, what are you doing? I'm just like, I'm thinking, and I'll just be like, what? And I'm just literally, I'll just, I could stare and just sit and look at nothing. And then I'm just like unpacking all the yeah. weird stuff. And I like, you also used to say that like, when you would have like, kind of more menial jobs to do early on in your career yeah. that just doing repetitive things. Yeah, that was like the be- like the job sucked, but like busying my hands or just giving my like so- self something to do yeah. always just kind of just made me... Because like that was how, why I liked like part of me liked the like being involved in all the fabrication because I'd be doing the same thing over and over so you're staring at the same yeah. stupid like thing on the shelf. And you're like, oh, how have I never known... Uh-huh. Like, or like, I remember one day I was washing the dishes and I was looking, I was like, just like washing the dishes. I have one of those just uh, little Bodum French press things. I'm like, oh, it looks like a penguin. Penguin, yeah. And then, I don't know. That's where it went. Then went upstairs for like the next 12 hours, (laughs) like designing stupid. But I think, uh, I think it's Neil Gaiman that talks about how, um, you know, the praise for boredom, like being bored uh, as the birth of creativity. And that... A lot of times, like, I totally get, like, trying to get out of crappy jobs that are stealing tons of your time, but, you know, doing things that are really unrelated and kind of boring and, and stupid to do often can feed back into you being yeah. creative. Yeah. I think if you just, like, I think the biggest thing for me was just when you have, when you have time where you don't have to be doing anything. Yeah. There's always been, whenever, the, I can never think with pressure, so it's always, like, um, just trying to clear all that out. Um, I don't know why I'm like a, I'm like a rolling, like uh, walking links or something, but I'll link to a... 
Oh, on linked, uh, there's a video about John Cleese talking oh, about I that you were thing. Saying, like links, like the wild cat. Like you're like a. I'm like. <laughs> I'm like a somersault. I don't know why links. I'm like a Wolverine, but I just have the energy of one. No, but he talks about the importance of like when you're going to go be creative, like blocking off yeah. hours of time and saying the only I'm not there's nothing has to come out of this. Yeah. Other than just having a good time with it or being present in the moment and making something. And if it's a total waste, that's totally fine. That's just part of it. Yeah. I mean, for every decent idea I've had, there's probably 2,000 other ones. Like, I don't know how many times I've kicked open the back door and ran into my wife and said, you have to listen to this new idea. <laughs> like, oh, really? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's like terrible. Yeah. yeah no, Totally. Just because, and then like the next day, I'm like, ah, I'm sorry about that. You got to have tons of terror. Yeah. No, I don't know what happened. I yeah. got possessed by the bad idea bug. It's uh, a tote bag. That's it. Some of those have made you the most money. <laughs> uh, well, that's awesome. Well, I don't have anything else if you don't. I don't know. Should we like dance or something? We can do, a, I don't have a closer yet. I don't have any like special way of saying goodbye. Um, I don't know. I don't have a fart. That would be a really good. A good fart noise. Yeah. You change. I can do my armpit one. Yeah, do that. I'm trying to get a squeaker in there. There we go. Thanks, Andrew. Man, that was such a good chat. I feel like there was so many little nuggets that Andrew brings to the table. He's the real deal. He's learned some serious lessons. He's someone who is totally doing that tightrope of business and art and just killing it with all that. And uh, I'm so pleased to have him on the podcast. I'm sure you guys really enjoyed it. Go check out his products to fill your house with. They will make your house more fun and more beautiful. I guarantee it. There's just some really, really brilliant stuff on there that'll make you laugh and make you cry out of uh, <laughs> out of just being like, wow, so beautiful. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if they'll make you cry, but they are fantastic. Go check it out, andrewnyer.com. That's N-E-Y-E-R.com. Go check that out. Thank you guys so much for listening to Creative Pep Talk. Thanks for being big supporters. I really want to thank the Patreon backers who pay for this show, even even just a dollar an episode. That is a game changer. It's made it so much easier to invest in this over the past year and a half. So thank you guys. Look forward to seeing you guys at Icon. Thanks to our syndicate, Illustration Age. You can find this show at illustrationage.com slash creative pep talk thank you to yoni wolf a past podcast interviewee uh go check out his interview he has lots of great things to say in a different perspective because he's a musician thank you to yoni and his band Y for the theme music at the beginning and the end thanks to nate utesh the great designer uh and illustrator great all-around guy for his band metavari and their tunes for the rest of the tracks you guys make the podcast sound so much better than just my goofy voice. Thank you guys so much for listening. Seriously, uh, I really believe that the discipline to create, the excitement, the, the longevity that you need comes from staying excited about what you're doing, believing that it matters, uh, and staying pepped up. So do whatever it takes, guys, to stay pepped up. 